Hey, thank you to Helix for sponsoring this podcast. Adam has had his Helix mattress for almost a year now, and he's loving it. It's it's actually hard to get him up. In fact, he won't stop talking about it. You'll understand what we mean when he goes into detail. Thank you for the detail, Adam, later on the episode. But for now, we want to tell our listeners about a special deal going on. Our Sleepy Time Pal Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and... As if that's not enough, two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash Paula. That's helixsleep.com slash Paula. This is their best offer yet, and I'll bet it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. from our houses in Los Angeles, California, it's Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, your comedy field guide to life. Tonight, we've got a book club. Yes, yes, we do. But are we in the book club? Do we have smart opinions about great literature? And what is great literature? And how do you define it other than a book that isn't Eat, Pray, Love? The University of Chicago's Dr. Timothy Campbell is here to school us all about book learning. And speaking of learning, prepare for us to learn you real good. It's the return of our potluck info party. I'm Adam Felber. This podcast's Dickens, laying out a well-made, approachable, and coherent narrative upon which to hang our amusing banter. And now, please welcome the woman who makes Thomas Pynchon gripe. Come on, try to focus. It's Paula Poundstone. Hey, you guys. How are you? Welcome, Paula. Hey, Adam. Adam, I am having a serious allergy attack. I have a walk-in closet, and I dusted it like at the beginning of the pandemic was really the last time. So that was almost two years ago. And I decided yesterday that I, I had to try again. I, I came across a dead canary about halfway through. <laughs> I need a, a nose, throat, and lung zamboni. <laughs> I, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, there's going to be a lot of interruptions, and let me just apologize for that ahead of time. That's okay. You might need one for your eyes as well because you appear to have overlooked the bit where we thank our house band. Did I? Did I forget to thank our house band? Oh, <laughs> it's the allergies. Oh, that's what it is. Thanks to tonight's house band, nobody, Chris Manye from Oakland, California, on the piano. Check out his new startup at tridico.com. Yeah, T-R-Y-D-E-C-O. That was great, Paula. Well, thanks, Chris. Oh, my gosh. You should. Tony gave me such an assemblage of pronunciation. <laughs> the I is pronounced like a double E. The O is a short O. The penultimate syllable is emphasized. And the G-N is like the G-N in gnocchi. Wow. Oh, my God. I'm exhausted. <laughs> and when Chris Manny was in school uh, on the first day, the, the teacher had to call off class at about halfway through just because you know how they always go through the class list and they try to get the pronunciations in if the kid has a nickname. So he, she said, could we just call you Chris M? And he said, well, sure. And then she said, well, what's your nickname? And unfortunately, Chris's nickname is Manny. <laughs> so she needed, needed to lay down right after that, I take it. Yeah. 
She was like a canary in my walk-in closet, just worn out. <laughs> Is there anything else new besides your allergies and your pronunciation guides? I don't think so. No, that's fine. You know, next week we're going to have a whole lot more to talk about because we're going to be uh, starting our new book club book. Oh, yes. And also, I was subpoenaed uh, by the January 6th uh, committee. So we'll talk about that next week. Um, yes. So uh, just to remind everybody, you guys yourselves came to our Facebook page and voted for Fight Club. So we're going to be reading chapters one through five to remind you guys uh, next week. But for now, we're just going to go around the horn like we used to and see how everybody's doing. Uh, Sherman Oaks, Tony Nidahal, you're on the line. Yeah, so I had a photo shoot with my cat. You did? I did. What? (laughs) Someone came to my house and took photos of us. Has your cat gotten an agent or something? (laughs) Mr. Totes is a very nice headshot now, but they're beautiful. They made me cry. I'm so excited. Did you pay for this? They were actually gifted to me by my colleagues, so they they oh, got me so nice. a portrait sitting with my cat for my birthday. Oh, that's really nice. So Mr. Totes is is getting into the business. Um, I hope you told him that Cats, the movie, didn't do well, and they're probably not going to do a sequel. <laughs> I don't want to break his heart. Shh, yeah. Don't tell him. He's been practicing and studying for quite a while now, hoping to do the sequel to Cats. Um, tell him that they're they're making a new Evita. <laughs> Done. Is there a cat in Evita? There is now. <laughs> you know that song, Don't Cry For Me? <sighs> That's... That's, oh, yeah. Paula, how many of your cats have headshots? Uh, none, although years ago, my cat Haskell was uh, Miss December in the Purina cat calendar, which we were very proud of. Oh, yeah. Well, that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah. I got to tell you, Tony, there was no living with her after that. So you (laughs) might want to keep Mr. Totes, you know, keep the ego uh, in check. Yeah. All right. And let's let's, uh, depart the land of cats in Sherman Oaks and head north to the Simi Valley, where perhaps in a less cluttered environment, we have Bonnie Burns. Bonnie. You know what? I really am in a less cluttered environment. I don't know what's happened to me. A little fire got lit under me, and I have been gradually getting stuff put away. Well, Bonnie, our listeners know what's happened to you. Do you not remember? I forgot. What happened to me? You stopped taking that medicine and all of a sudden had all this energy to do stuff. Oh, yeah, I didn't want to mention that. I was embarrassed. <laughs> we, we, we talked about it at length last week on air. Okay, oh. well, then this change in medications has really made a difference. And I literally am getting things like done and stuff put away. I got my office all cleaned up. It, it's unreal. Um, what medication were you on? Was it sedentaria? (laughs) I just think I was on the wrong medication for so long that it just, I don't know, I got used to that attitude. Uh, What difference does it make? Wow. You went to great lengths to keep taking that medicine that was keeping you down. Because it was the only thing that I knew about to do. Huh. It's miraculous here. Just out of curiosity, how long were you on that other medication? Like about 20 years. Wow. Was there like a lot of hoarding residue built up as a result? (laughs) 
No, I think in the beginning it was fine. I just think your body or something must change over a period of time, and it's no. not the right medicine for you. Yeah. Okay, I had this thing I wanted to tell you about. With your renewed energy for life. Go ahead. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just wait until you see all the things you're going to be doing. Um, okay, well, I want to tell you about a new sport they have out here, or pastime, which is axe throwing. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. I didn't know anything about that. So there are lanes like bowling alley, mm -hmm. and then they've got, like, you know, the bullseye thing at the end. You get an axe, and you stand there, and you keep throwing the axe. My daughter did it, and she said she thinks she should do it every, every night after work. There's literally an axe-throwing range at your, at near your house? Yeah, an axe-throwing range. It's indoors, like a bowling alley. They're very popular. Oh, Are they? see? Really? Well, they're popular with a lot of daughters. You know who was good at it? Lizzie Borden. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, have you uh, thrown axes? No, I, I, I haven't done it. I'm too scared. <laughs> so, If you practice um, in your new apartment, make sure Mr. Totes is in the other room. Oh, my goodness. I can't even think about that. Yeah, save it for the cruise, Tony. I think it'll be good on the cruise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I, you know, whatever. I, I I like people to be happy. <laughs> what, you don't like the idea of axe throwing? I mean, is that different from bowling? Well, yes. There's a lane, and you're doing something at the end of it. Yeah. Hopefully it doesn't, like bowling, have a machine that throws the axe back at you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what? I didn't ask her how you get the axe back. Oh, I guess you run up there and get it and bring it yeah. back. Yeah, I'm mm -hmm. sure that's really safe while the other people are still throwing axes. Yeah. <laughs> this does not sound as, e as easy as bowling. Um, but you know what? Speaking of bringing joy, Paula, don't do you have a word for us this week? You know, I do, Adam. Hold on. I have to put on my axe helmet. Um, <laughs> uh, I do have a word. It's heuristic. It's an adjective that means characterized by disputatious and often subtle and spacious reasoning. Here, I'll use it in a sentence. Although prior to Trump, the Republican Party was still heuristic, uh, they at least attempted reason. Heuristic is a wonderful word. Let's put it in the vocabulary song. Adam, Ad Adam, answer the what? phone. Paula, let's just do the song. No, answer the phone. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Hello. Hi, Adam. It's me, Miss Nancy Fairbanks Elementary School second grade teacher. And I would like to sing the vocabulary song. Oh, hi, Miss Nancy. Uh, you became so accomplished at teaching online. Uh, what has it been like to be back in the classroom? Oh, Adam, it is awesome. I love it. The kids are so happy. They're a little behind in their skills, but we're working hard to catch up. They're at PE right now, which is why I had time to call in to sing the vocabulary song. Oh, that's that's good. Uh, then I guess we should hurry. Paula, you want to make uh, that heavenly sound you make on the clock? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hold on just a sec. All right. Uh. This week's word is heuristic. 
It's an adjective that means characterized by disputatious and often subtle and specious reasoning. How many times do I have to tell you my pets don't have fleas because I use a lot of seasoning? Last week's word was preponderance. It's a noun that means the state of being greater in number. Most jacks want to chop lumber. The week before that, the word was Russell. What are you doing here? Did you get thrown out of P.E. for making farting noises with your armpit again? Enid, Flower Stamen, what are you all doing here? Oh, your P.E. coach, Mr. Dusenberry, hurt his arm and had to go home early. All right, all right, Miss Nancy is having her teacher's minute, so please take your seats quietly and wait. The week before that, the word was amnesic. It's a noun or an adjective that means experiencing or relating to a partial or total loss of memory. It happened a lot to Victoria Barclay in the Big Valley. Russell, are you pouring chips inside your mask? It is not a nutrition break yet, and your mask is bulging out like that. It defeats the purpose of the mask, Russell. School board members risked their lives to keep you safe. You use your mask properly. The week before that, the word was palanquin. It's a noun that means a covered litter for one passenger consisting of a large box carried on two horizontal poles by four or six bearers. Not a mode of transportation for really great sharers. Going back before that, the word was manda. It's a verb that means talk in a rambling manner. Someone who talks about Archie comic salad spinners, mood rings, and Matthew McConaughey in a talk on oil prices isn't a very good speech planner. And not long ago, the word was mephitic. It's an adjective that means smelling very unpleasant, like a really old dead pheasant. Mephitic, 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 P-U. Enid, we will not call our fellow students mephitic. Even though it's a fancier word than stinky, it can still hurt their feelings. Let's never forget Gallimaufry, which Paula pronounced wrong until nobody James Heider corrected her. It's a noun that means confused jumbler medley of things. Hodgepodge, who's podge, hodgepodge. Adam doesn't think Paula's song is replicable. Replicable, replicable. But I do, I do, I do, I do. Tony Anita Hull, I issue you a challenge. If you can use this week's word, heuristic, correctly in a sentence on three occasions during this episode, I, on my teacher's salary, will pay for dollars worth of advertising on this show for Marshall's Music and Bookstore at 618 North Ferris Street in Jackson, Mississippi. Yes, Russell, we know there's a PP in Mississippi, but we don't pretend to urinate in our classroom. It's disruptive behavior like that that's keeping you behind in your skills. I'm sorry for that interruption. <laughs> I have to go. Russell, that's not the kind of have to go that Miss Nancy meant. Wow, Miss Nancy? Well, she didn't even stick around for her applause. I guess she hung up. Um, hopefully uh, she'll listen later. Thank you, Miss Nancy, everybody. Yay! Ooh. She really, she has a gift for teaching. Yeah, she really does. Uh, she's And her ability to, to multitask, which I know you think isn't a thing. Oh, it's not a thing. But she really stayed on point on that vocabulary song and corrected her class. 
Yeah. Well, Russell's a handful. He sure is. Coming up, P.T. Barnum said, literature is one of the most interesting and significant expressions of humanity. And then added, and so is this kid with lobster hands. <laughs> Great literature will be revealed when we come back. Hey, Paula. You know... Every once in a while, we get a new advertiser that I get super excited about. And I have to say, just because of the circumstances of my life right now, I'm really excited about our new advertiser, Quince of Quince.com, the clothing provider. Not to be mistaken for Quince from Midsummer Night's Dream. And let me just say this, and maybe it's not important to an advertisement, but when I was in the fourth grade, our class put on a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay. And I played I played Peter Quince. There. There's the connection. One of the mechanicals. That's a great connection. Also, yes, has nothing to do with this, which is that um, Quince is an online clothing store. And as you know, Paula, I've, uh, I've lost a little weight lately. Oh, right. 75 pounds. Yeah. So I literally have no clothes that are in my size until I just ordered some stuff at Quince. And I figured, like, here's a chance for me to create a new look for myself. A whole new image. And how's it going? Not bad. I mean, the clothes are fantastic. I know that you ordered some too. What I got is I got yes. the Comfort Stretch Traveler five pocket pants. And I got oh. the, um, oh, it's so, and I got the 100% European linen shirt and it looks breezy and it fits beautifully. And these are like premium pieces of clothing that are selling for like, you know, $30 a piece or starting at $30 at quince.com. It's awesome. I look good. I ordered the brushed lounge jogger Ooh. and you know i put them on when i came back from new york i pulled them on and i i swear to you okay this is not scientific because i was tired already right but they were so soft <laughs> and, and so comfortable that honestly like right as i got them up to my waist i i I think my eyes closed they're so it's a softness it's a kind of softness that I don't think I've ever experienced in a garment, honestly. You know, my uh, drawstring European linen trousers are a little bit like that too. Like so comfortable that I just want to hang out with myself. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're European. Keep that in mind. Uh, oh, European. they are so European. And you can get those kinds. Of, you can get washable silk tops. You can get uh, 14 karat gold jewelry and like all these accessories. Quince sells a lineup of timeless pieces that keep their customers looking effortlessly chic year after year. I'm not certain that I look chic, but certainly if I did, it's not going to take a lot of effort. I now look chic and I feel pretty great. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabric. It's all good as far as I can see. Is it my imagination or do they cut out the middleman? They cut out the middleman, Paula Poundstone. I love it when they cut out the middleman. That's the thing, they cut out the middleman. <laughs> That's fantastic. So be like me and Paula. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash nobody for free shipping on your order and a 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash nobody to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash nobody. Nobody. And honestly, I look fantastic. Paula, you won't be able to keep your hands off me. Oh, I can't wait. And don't <laughs> think that if you had to return something, don't think you're sending it to a middleman because they cut out the middleman. They man. cut out the middleman. That's quince.com slash nobody. And if you're going to do it anyway. Use our code. Adam, you know, I have a house full of cats and a couple of big dogs. 
So I have this one cat who every night likes to stand in the hallway and yowl. And he has kind of a, a little bit like me because uh, of allergies. I don't know why he has it, but his name is Theo and he has a really grovelly voice. So he'll, it's, it's hard to describe it. I can't do a good impression, um, but it's a little dusty, gravelly voice. Okay. So earlier I was laying on the living room floor because I'm exhausted and I'm wearing a nylon fiber filled vest. As I'm laying on the floor, Theo shoves his head through one sleeve of the vest and crawls up and is now stuck inside in between my back and the vest and is yowling <laughs> because he can't get out. And then finally his head comes out the other sleeve and he goes out. What's not to love? That's what I say. What is not to love? Which brings me to this. Today's episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. Your pet is part of your family. You know that already. And you want the best for them no matter what. But vet bills can really add up. Go ahead, ask me. That's why you should check out pet insurance. And with ASPCA, Pet Health Insurance, you can focus on the care your pet deserves and cover what matters most. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. That's a lot of pets. True. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are. Because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash Paula. That's ASPCA. We spell that A-S-P-C-A. PetInsurance.com slash Paula. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. And if you're going to do it anyway, use our code. Hey, Paula, it's been almost a year now since I got my Helix mattress. And as you remember, there was some drama surrounding Helix mattresses. Because oh, when oh Helix gosh. first sponsored us, Bonnie took the mattress and yeah. she's been loving it. But finally, I got my chance to get a Helix mattress and I sleep so well. I mean, the family bed is where we all gather. We watch movies in, in our room occasionally and everybody just piles on it and it it's comfy. And yet when one person hops on, the other half of the mattress doesn't fly up. I'm a fan. Well, you know, Adam, everybody is unique and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side. Models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions plus enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It is the perfect combination of comfort 
and support. I agree with that last bit. I don't get all the technical stuff about the mattress, but it is soft and supportive. Helix offers 20 unique mattresses, the award-winning Lux, which I got, and ultra-premium Elite Collections, the Helix Plus, a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and the Helix Kids mattress designed for growing bodies and endorsed by child sleep experts, and my daughter now wants one. So, how will you know which Helix mattress works best for you and your body? You go to their website, take the Helix Sleep Quiz, and you find your perfect mattress batch in under two minutes. You know, when you said you can't follow all the technical stuff, it's really not that technical. You know, uh, no matter what way you sleep, they have a mattress that will support and comfort you. How hard is that? Uh, you know, when you say it that way, it seems a lot simpler. I take it back. That's my boner. And your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door, free of charge. And Helix knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. Well, I like that there's a warranty, but they can pry that mattress from my cold, dead hands. I took the sleep quiz. I was matched with the Helix Midnight Lux. I got the Lux. And I love it. It is such an upgrade from my old mattress. You know, I think Bonnie got the Midnight Lux. She did. Too. Yeah. You're not here. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to take Adam's word for it? Well, you got Bonnie's word. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Your Sleepy Time Pal Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. That's a lot, and it's already not that expensive a mattress. Go to helixsleep.com slash Paula. That's helixsleep.com slash Paula. This is their best offer yet. It's fantastic. It won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Well, not right now. And if you're going to get it anyway, use our code. On this day in unremarkable history, Captain Kangaroo said, Dancing Bear, are you refusing to carry out an order from a superior officer? And thank you, house band Chris Monier. Hey, Paula Poundstone, you know what's happening right now. Oh, boy, the holidays are coming up, Adam. They're upon us. It's a very busy time, and my social skills, you know, as we've spoken of before, are still a bit rusty. Yeah. I'm sure I'm going to be invited to a lot of parties. I'm Finally, sure people are partying again. Oh, I, you know, Adam, I don't, I, I really like to seem intelligent when I'm making, you know, cocktail party talk. And I don't think I know how. Uh, now, you might argue that it's because I'm not that intelligent, and I hear that, but I wish there was like a, I wish there was a, you know, like a shortcut. You know what I mean? Just so I can fit in. Let's talk about something other than Green Acres? Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Paula, by amazing happenstance, we have an expert in that subject right now, the subject of being well-read. Dr. Timothy Campbell is an associate professor and the director of undergraduate studies in the Department of English Language and Literature at the University of Chicago. Please welcome Dr. Timothy Campbell. Yay! Yay! Bravo! Woo-hoo! 
are <laughs> the odds of this? Thank um, you. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, what, what do you want us to call you? Should we call you Doctor? Doc Campbell? Timothy? Call me Tim. Call me Tim. Tim. I'm oh. calling you Tim. That's what I'm calling you. I was gunning for Doc Campbell, but I'll go with Tim too. Oh, yeah. No, that's from um, Green Acres. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, Tim. I think I heard that when Jane Austen was first published, her books weren't highly regarded, but they are now. Is that true? Um, yes, that's basically true with an, with an important asterisk. I mean, regarded is a complicated word, but, um, you know, you could just step back. Of course, like any, any author, um, before they, they become mythologies are never as famous as they end up. So, I mean, Shakespeare himself might be a good way to think about this. Um, mm -hmm. he's writing around 1600, but he's not really a national icon until almost 200 years later. So around 1769, uh, the leading actor of the day, Richard Garrick, organized a big party, the Jubilee in Stratford, um, with pageantry, festivals, merchandising, everything else, uh, which helped catapult Shakespeare to something like the status he's held ever since, right? He had his fans, right? Not everybody got a fancy folio edition of their work um, a long time ago, but he wasn't the same kind of figure. Um, now, so, so for Austin herself, it's definitely true that her novels weren't immediately runaway successes. So she's, she's writing the earliest versions of several of her novels in the 1790s um, and sends the first draft of Pride and Prejudice to a publisher in 1797 where it's rejected. Um, and then she doesn't publish a novel uh, until many years later, 16 years later, that novel is finally published. Um, wow. So it, it, took, it took more than one try, even for Jane Austen. It wasn't all bad news because the, the novels got much more interesting, partly because she had all that time to reflect on several novels that she started way back in the 1790s and didn't publish for 15, uh, 20 years. So Austen, by the time she's actually publishing her novels, isn't, isn't doing badly exactly, um, but she's selling novels in the hundreds of copies. The biggest edition that was ever published of her work in her lifetime was 2,000 novels. That's Emma. And only 1,500 of those are so actually sold. So you compare that to the best-selling novelist of the age, Walter Scott, who's the guy who somewhat invented the historical novel. Um, and he's selling in the hundreds of thousands and millions while she's selling wow. in the hundreds. Um, and so she's, she's uh, out of print for 12 years after her death. Um, uh, there's only 12 reviews of her books published in her lifetime. Uh, and so it's, it's, she's definitely not the person we've come to know as Jane Austen. Um, but then again, there's an asterisk, right? Mm -hmm. um, there were some initial readers who realized that she was on to something. Among them famously was Walter Scott himself, who reviewed Emma in an unsigned review. Um, and pointed especially to her her unusual power. She was sort of the, uh, the 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 best possible version of mastering common life and the everyday. But Scott also, uh, in a more in a letter, so a kind of more personal mode, uh, ten years later, is anecdotally she's, he anecdotally he's remarking on um, reading Pride and Prejudice for at least the third time. Um, and he says, I do pretty well with the big Bow Wow strain of novel, these big sweeping historical epics. Um, but 
I don't have powers that can touch Austin in terms of um, the everyday, the ordinary. Now, I read, I, I don't even remember which of her, but I, I think I read like Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. And I maybe Emma, I read them in a collection uh, and I read one right after the other. And I don't know if uh, Walter Scott mentioned this, but um, it makes them kind of run together in your head. Mm-hmm. Is that going to discredit me at parties? So I, I got some good news and some bad news. Um, there are certain really devoted readers of Austin for whom uh, uh, you're going to you're you're going to seem disappointing for not for not knowing every character, every character yeah. chapter and verse. But I, I think it's actually there's other things you can do with novels besides taking them as like real things, each one as its own world, et cetera. And um, you know, I was just saying Austin's novels went out of print. Um, the, they they got taken up and sort of gained their first foothold. Um, in so that in 1832, after that 12 year break, um, in in a, a series of novels, um, a kind of anthology of novels, um, the, the, this uh, this collection that was called the Standard Novels by a publisher named Bentley. So the the, the people who were were newly coming into contact with Austin were reading her as a bunch of novels together in this collection, quite possibly. Oh. I mean, they're kind of individual volumes, but this is how this is how people did it. And I would say. I think it can be just as interesting to read the novels together and get mixed up a little bit in the sense that different novels are doing different things in a kind of systematic way sometimes. I know that in some of them, the main character becomes vexed and in others, um, they develop consternation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Now, in 1979, I believe it was, I tried... Because I understood it to be something that was considered heady literature. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why I bought this book. But I bought uh, Gravity's Rainbow and tried to read it in 1979. I think I got through three or four pages. Uh, is there any way to parlay that into intellectual banter? Like, what should I say about Gravity's Rainbow? I would lead with the fact that you read it in 1979 because you're in on the ground floor. That's a pretty good thing. Maybe don't mention that you didn't read the whole thing. Um, no, I think I read I would, four pages. I knew to quit when I was beaten. <laughs> well, I, 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 I want to say, you know, as a professor, uh, if you're taking a class, it's really important to read the books that are on the table, right? Everybody's reading these books together. You have a built-in community of readers who are going to talk about it together. You have a professor who you have to trust a little bit as pick books that are going to pay off for you. But um, real life isn't a class, right? And you can't read every book. I got a bookshelf full of books I may never get to because it's the fifth bookshelf, you know? Yeah. Um, and it keeps yeah. getting bigger. And, I hear you. you know, I think you have to read long enough a book, in a book to give it a chance um, to, to try it out. Um, that's important because often books will pay off when they don't at first. But also, you know, if you're if a book is so painful that you're not ever going to get through it and you're going to miss the other great books that you might be turning to in place of this book, you know, that's not a bad choice to make. And you can always go back um, if it haunts you so much that you didn't read it. If you do wait long enough, sometimes things come full circle. And, you know, by this point, I think Gravity's Rainbow is a little bit dated. Um, you oh, know, is it's, it? a, it's a novel. It's from the moment of well, like, you know, I'm, that's not my realm of expertise, but, you know, the kind of postmodern theory novel that, that that text represents is not doesn't seem to be most people's most pressing concern these days. And it's some of its preoccupations start to seem of its time. 
50 years later. That comes full circle again, right? You know, it, it's, it, all, it all comes back in cycles sometimes. Well, all those books that were, you know, sort of apocalyptic in, in nature uh, should be back in style now. Uh, because now we really need pointers. We're up against you know? it. Well, I just want to say, Jean Cocteau said the greatest masterpiece in literature is only a dictionary out of order, which earned him the coveted title of Captain Bong Hits in his freshman dorm. More literary talk when we come back. The Cat of the Week is Buster Glenn from Gardner, Maine. me, Paula Poundstone. Have you noticed how unflappable I am lately? My incorrigible prankster dog, Mo, flushed a tennis ball down the toilet and went in after it. I never even mentioned it. A porch pirate stole my porch. I'm steady as she goes. You know why? I'm back in theaters. I ask that my audience be vaccinated and masked so we can enjoy nights of unbridled laughter in the very best company there is, which is with you. I've missed you so much, and I can't wait to see you. And we are back with Dr. Timothy Campbell. Paula. Is listening to an unabridged version of a book looked down upon? And I hope not because I listened to Moby Dick twice for our book club and I'm, I was really impressed with myself. Uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't look down on listening to uh, books on tape, especially if they're unabridged. Um, uh, partly, uh, that's a great way to read. Also, the person I'm married to is, also, is a professor and she listens to a lot of books on tape while she's driving. So I'd be in trouble if I said otherwise. Um, but there's some great things about listening to books on tape, right? For one thing, it slows you down. Um, you know, I think there's a drawback, which is that when you're when I'm reading a, a novel, you can constantly go back on the page and reread the sentences that you have trouble with. And it's a little less natural to kind of rewind a book on tape, I think. But also, like the the sound makes its own kind of sense and meaning too, um, and so, you know, it's funny because when we're talking about poetry, um, we we take it for granted that the sound is really important. That reading it aloud is essential. I make my students do that when they're reading poetry, and they often find it a revelatory experience because so much of the meaning comes from the sound. Yeah. All right, you got to tell me what uh, you got to tell me what I what I should say, like. Is there a line from a Jane Austen novel that I can toss out, you know, while I, uh, you know, while I swirl my Diet Pepsi in a in a champagne flute? So I think, um, you know, you can always quote lines, but I would say, like, rather than give you a quote, mm -hmm. I think quotes might not be the best way to strike up a good conversation. Oh, okay. um, and I think the like what I would say this is this is partly like tricks tricks of the trade of English professors, right? Mm -hmm. um, is to to not worry so much about um, the performance of remembering this brilliant line. I mean, those all you can always sprinkle those in if something comes 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 to mind or is at hand. But I think the the good conversations that I have about literature tend to be something more like this. Like, there's this really amazing moment in the book when, right? I thought mm -hmm. this would happen, but something else happened. 
or uh, this author is using this concept one way, which is slightly different than I usually think about it. And it really made me think about it, all these other things that, um, that, that were going on in the novel, like this and this and this. And so you're, you're kind of sharing your, your experience of some kind of moment that you had when you were reading more than just a quotation. Um, you know, quotations, quotations help when somebody knows the exact same quotation, but otherwise they don't, right? So I could just make shit up. Well, um, you could, but, but I bet you have moments of reading when you think, man, that's something interesting that's going on. Just put those in your pocket. <laughs> All right. So say I go to put my, my champagne flute down on a table on a uh, caterer's tray and uh, the caterer walks by and I, and I miss and I just, it, it just shatters on the floor. Then I can say, oh, that's so like a Jane Austen novel. How I thought he was going this way, and then he went that way. Would that be correct? Uh, <laughs> that feels uh, that 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 feels like that's not really very impressive literarily. Oh come on! Yeah. All right, what about what about Moby Dick? You know, we we did uh, uh, Moby Dick was our first book club book, mm-hmm. and uh, um, uh, as I said, I listened to the whole book. Twice, uh, I just really understood it as a story about a, you know, a big fish and a man who wanted to kill it. I understand it's supposed to be more layered. What should I say in an elite intellectual party about Moby Dick? Um, with Moby Dick, like Melville, like all of his, his language is like poetry. So you could almost just start reciting things. Um, I would skip Call Me Ishmael and the, most of the, the whale biology stuff. <laughs> Oh yeah, when the guy wears the uh, the whale penis as sort of a wetsuit, that don't bring that up. <laughs> no, bring that up. He's talking about all those chapters where he where that we were talking about where he just describes right. what he thinks the whale characteristics are, and he's wrong. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think uh, you know, part, converse, conversation or teaching is partly about like knowing how how much of your hard won experience to share how directly right so i think it could be fascinating to hear about the experience of reading all the whale biology stuff but it's not the stuff to quote (laughs) now what about you when you go to uh department holiday parties do you engage with uh people about literature sure i mean (laughs) we do yes um People are usually like, as you might expect, most interested to, to mention some book that they've recently read, um, and that tends to be con- more contemporary stuff. Tends to be the, the conversation fodder. Um, Pray so, love. So do you- Wait, Moby Dick was first, right? Yeah. 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 I. I yeah. M- reverse order probably would have been better, but. Oh, so you're building to something? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you taught Eat, Pray Love the year it came out. Um, <laughs> uh, all right, so. What what other authors should I bring up as I try to impress uh, people? Okay, so I mean, there's two ways of answering this question. Um, I think I like a lot of professors and uh, sort of obnoxious and not wanting to answer that question, and I think there's a good reason for that. It's that you know, as critics, you know, we have to pick some things over others. But you know, the the romantic poet John Keats um, described the 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 kind of role or the function of the poet as to be a chameleon, right? To, to have no self-regard, to have a sense of negative capability, to not decide things so as to be sympathetic as long as possible, 
with everything else, right? And so, I mean, that is a real important thing about critics is that we don't, we, we, we like, like, so when people ask me, what's my favorite book? I, I sometimes say, well, favorite for what? Or uh, what kind of book? Um, so I can tell you some, some books, but I, I think it might be just interesting to think about like how to go about finding books. Um, okay, but when just, you said favorite for what, I'm looking mm-hmm. for something that will make me fit in intellectually. You know, if you want to read something that's great and fun, that has something to say to everybody, Frankenstein's always a good choice. I love Frankenstein. It's one of my favorite stories. So like Frankenstein, you can talk about its legacy in film. Um, I think the 1818, the first edition is better because it's a little bit wilder and less censored um, and more fun. But Frankenstein, it's talking about ethics and sympathy and monsters and race and population and science and what reading is and what history is. And um, everybody likes Frankenstein. There's always something to say with Frankenstein. Um, It's amazing how Mary Shelley wrote this book that made it all the way to the cereal aisle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there used to be Frankenberry. I, I mean, really. Okay, I have to tell you a story. So one time, uh, w- my son took hockey at this skating rink, and uh, there was all this equipment you had to put on him, and I'd always have to distract him. So I was telling him and my daughter, who was helping us, uh, we were in the ladies' room in the dressing area, and I was telling him the story of Frankenstein. And I got him all the way dressed, and then I had to step into the stall to use the toilet, and I continued telling the story. We were the only ones in the bathroom. I continued <laughs> telling the story. When I came out, another lady had come into the bathroom, <laughs> and my children had left. <laughs> I was telling the story of Frankenstein from my ladies' room stall at the skating rink with no one but a stranger <laughs> in the bathroom. I just felt, when, you know, should I use that at the cocktail party or just stick to? That, that's a good I story. I think it's this, yeah. That, that actually sounds a little bit like Frankenstein, actually. Uh, abandoned. The, I was abandoned. Frankenstein himself, Victor Frankenstein, has to tell his tale to a stranger. Um, and then the creature tells his tale to the same stranger. You know, it's the same kind of story. <laughs> Wow, that was good work. Uh, All right, I reference Dickens a lot. I think Frankenstein's probably my favorite story, but my favorite author is uh, is Charles Dickens. And I say it sometimes in front of my high school English teachers who are good friends of mine. And if I'm interpreting their facial expressions correctly, I believe they look down on me. So what I'm asking is, uh, should... I bring up Dickens in a in an intellectual cocktail party uh, setting over the holiday. Yes, <laughs> you're you're sort of preaching to the choir and the historical literary critic here. So, I mean, what I'd say is, first of all, I doubt your uh, your friends are really looking down on you for praising Dickens. Oh, um, Dickens! Dickens is <laughs> Dickens is great. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, I think I would also say that. People often think that edgy new things are most interesting to talk about, and I think that's fair enough, right? Um, and at the same time, things go in cycles. So, uh, you know, Dickens is a novelist of romance um, in the sense of happy endings, especially, right? As against realism, that tends to be what we think has the most kind of, um, you know, real gritty stature. Um, but there's 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 limits to what we write now. Um, in contemporary writing, when you have the perspective of having read a lot of historical literary texts, can sometimes seem not that exciting. It's the present tense of literary conversation. 
but it also um, doesn't always have a lot of historical perspective on itself. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really good at uh, being experimental with what it chooses to do. But if you're looking at a long view, say, thinking about Dickens in the 19th century, where he's, you know, innovating novels that have these massive character systems, or you're thinking about the 18th century novel, when what a novel even is, is up for grabs. Um, and basically, every possible permutation of narration and form and genre is tried out by someone or another. So there's a novel like, you know, say you're looking for an epistolary novel with twin unreliable narrators. You can of go course find Somali's The Recess <laughs> in 1780s. Somebody has taken that up. So, you know, once, once people get more sure about what novels are, um, their ways of rebelling against that sureness aren't always as interesting as like the way people didn't even know what they were doing in the first place and therefore had all these interesting experimental ways of writing fiction. So I think Dickens is a good case. And, you know, uh, people rise and fall. Scott was the best-selling novelist of his moment. And then he became kind of, you know, reading for adolescents. And then people stopped reading them altogether. Uh, and then in the 50s and 60s, he sort of came back as this really important literary figure for critics, someone who was helping people think about how history works. Um, you know, um, how, how, are, how do historical processes unfold uh, in ordinary lives? Uh, Scott came full circle in that respect, at least for critics. Uh, kind of like, would you say, the author of Gossip Girl? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm behind on Gossip Girl, I have to say. All right, wait. What makes a book? Bonnie looked up uh, the book Fight Club. She Googled it. That's, that's the problem. next book in our book club. We should let you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> but Bonnie right. Googled it and she said it's a classic, which surprised me uh, in mm -hmm. a Jane Austen kind of a way. And I'm wondering what, what makes a book a classic? That's a really great question. Um, you know, I'm not sure this, I, I, you know, I'm not going to argue one way or the other for Fight Club. Um, but I would say that what makes a book a classic finally is um, the community of readers and critics who respond to it across time. Uh, it's a community that unfolds over time and that extends to lots of different kinds of people uh, who can all see something in a text. I mean, one of the things, the great things about a classic is it's it's never exhausted. Is one that's one that's one way to say it. But that sounds a little cliched. I mean, I think uh, there are things in a, a book that becomes a classic that no one in the moment it was written realized about it, right? There's something really profound about the fact that there's some kind of meaning packed away in there somehow that it takes, uh, you know, uh, a, a community of people thinking about it and, and doing so a lot later to really realize what the book was about. Um, uh, and so something, something about that quality um, is what I would, what I would uh, fly the flag for as a class. <laughs> I thought it was about Brad Pitt. <laughs> I've, only, I've only seen the movie. I haven't read that book. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even see the movie. I just saw the trailer. Uh, Brad Pitt, fight, fight, fight. Brad Pitt. That's, I think, the first <laughs> chapter. Um, but do you have any other books that yeah, I give might... Paul, give Paula like one or two more books that she should definitely kind of brush up on for her holiday cocktail party uh, witty banter. I could give you a couple quick ones. Okay. okay. So if you want a historical book, that, you know, it's one of the things when you go to uh, grad school or you're an advanced English major as an undergrad, 
you get to read these books that not very many people have read and you're like, wow, that's just an amazing book. So um, Nella Larson's Passing would be one example. It's back in conversation because it's, I think it's on Netflix. I haven't seen the um, adaptation yet, but. Is that the name of the book or is there the author Nella Larson? And- Nella Larson is her name, Passing is the title. Oh, okay. Um, I would say that one. If you want, If you want a book that's really amazing historical book from the romantic moment, that not a lot of people read who aren't um, experts in the field, mm-hmm. um, but is like, I think is fun and accessible. Mary Wollstonecraft, who was Mary Shelley's mother, um, oh, married to that. the leading radical philosopher of the age. And she herself wrote a, 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 a vindication of the rights of woman in the moment of the French Revolution. So an wow. feminist, but she, she also, and she, she died in childbirth, giving birth to Mary Shelley. But not, not, not very many people have re- read this, but it's kind of a travelogue, um, memoir, philosophical meditation um, called Letters Written in Sweden, Denmark, um, and Norway, which is just gives you a sense of like, you know, a, a really capacious, fascinating historical person who's thinking about all kinds of interesting topics. And um, that would be a great one. All right. Those are on my list. Wow. Now. And Persuasion. If you didn't read Jane Austen's Persuasion, that's my favorite Jane Austen one. So I don't think I did. I think that was at the end. I think I had read like three of the novels and I had all the characters hopelessly mixed up. And I think Persuasion was the last one. And I just went, okay, you know what? I have to stop. Um, I noticed that you didn't mention Pippi <laughs> Longstocking, but I am not going to hold that against you. <laughs> well, Tim, Tim, that was excellent. And now we're going to take this vast body of new literary knowledge and run it through the old Pounstonator. Paula? House band Chris Manyi, thank you for your fantastic piano music. And if you could just indulge me with a little more, I'd love some background music while I tell you what the old Pounstonator spit out. Thank you, Dr. Timothy Campbell, for your large body of literary knowledge. This was really wonderful. Unfortunately, I could not seem to get the good doctor to give me the literary keys to the social kingdom, the the shortcuts, the cliff notes, the literary lines I can drop at parties so I can seem intellectual. Here's what I recommend. Find a cluster of influentials sipping champagne by the fire and say, sorry I'm late, I was just reading some Jane Austen. And once I start reading Emma's Sense and Prejudice, I just can't put it down. Then sidestep to the bar where you'll find someone with distinctive glasses frames and say, I am so enjoying everything Whitman's these days. And of course, I mean the chocolates. I just love how they label the chocolates on the inside lid of the box. There's nothing worse than biting into what you think is going to be a Carmel Center and finding coconut. What kind of nuts like coconut? Then you might have to excuse yourself to the restroom, and if there's a line, this would be a good time to say, I spent the day curled up with Milton. It's one of my favorite ways to spend the day, and of course I mean the toaster. Look at the scars on my arms. I practically burned my house down. Now you might want to say, oops, turns out I don't have to pee and make your way back to the living room, where you might find some bigwigs discussing the China cabinet. Not the delicate dishes, but the people who advise Xi Jinping. Here you might blurt out, 
For intellectual clout, in my mind, there's no one greater than McCluskey. I mean, get out of the way of the ducklings. Doesn't that just say it all? the director of undergraduate studies in the Department of English Language and Literature at the University of Chicago. Ooh. Thank you, Dr. Ken Timothy Campbell, everybody. Yeah. Yay! Uh, t- Tim. Thank you for having Tim, me. Tim, this was wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, wait, I just have one more question. Dog ear or bookmark? Uh, <laughs> you know... Bookmark if I have. Bookmark if I if it's really really important. Dog ear is more normal. But I also just like to write page numbers at the front of the book. I write in my books. I give you permission. Oh yeah, just writing the page <laughs> down. That's brilliant. I never even thought of that. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has really been wonderful. I so appreciate your being with us. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, my pleasure. See you at the thank parties. You. Coming up, some people don't even know what they don't know. But they're about to because Potluck Info Party is coming up next. Fun fact, when the moon is directly overhead, you will weigh slightly less. And then, as it moves on, you will hear a distant voice shout, Later, fatso! We're back. Thank you, house band Chris Manye and Paula Poundstone. I got to put a plug in for this. Next week, right here on our program, our guest is the one and only Billie Jean King. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. The first thing I'm going to ask her is if she's read Jane Austen. I'm going to ask her if the kid is not his son or not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's that Billie Jean. We'll find out next week. Uh, But for now, let's find out other amazing facts and pieces of info. It's time for our Potluck Info Party. Yay! It's a Potluck Info Party. It's a Potluck Info Party. (laughs) Party. Party. I love it. I'm dancing. I'm surprised there's not a bigger crowd of people, like, in my house, uh, because that... That theme song for the Potluck Info Party is so magnetic. It's memorable. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very yeah, memorable. Yeah, it really is. All right, um, <laughs> let's get straight to the partying. And by that, I mean the info. Um, let's, uh, let's start with Paula Poundstone. The show's named after you. Give us some info. All right, here's a little piece of information. The earthworm's characteristic crawling movement is caused by the action of muscles in the body wall These lengthen and shorten the body in wave-like motions. Four pairs of tiny hard bristles on each segment help the worm grip the ground and hold on to the side of the burrow. That's how a worm crawls. Wow. It's like lengthening, gripping, and then pulling itself forward. That's really cool. Yeah. Sort of like when you put water on your straw wrapper. Sort of like that. <laughs> now that I have uh, found that fact, I can tell you that it adds up f- uh, for my worms, Leonard and the rest of the, the pack. I think I have about 3,000 worms now, by the way. And I'm still waiting for my payment uh, from Adam Felber. All right. Anyways, that's my fact. Wow. That's a reminder of a bet that I made with Paula where uh, 
I ended up uh, promising her a a pound of these yep. red wiggler worms, and that that's it's in the mail. It's just the mail is so slow during the holiday season, Paul. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. You're lucky. You're lucky. DeJoy is there. DeJoy is de saving your ass. <laughs> that's right. DeJoy is saving my de ass. And let's go up to Decimi Valley for De Bonnie. Bonnie, what info wow. do you have for us uh, for the potluck? Well, mine is about the horse. And I don't know if you know this, but the horse is the only creature in the animal kingdom that has only one toe, which is their hoof. Five million years ago is when they evolved from being a tiny animal that had stubby little legs. They lived in the forest, and when the forest expanded into more open areas, they evolved to having longer legs, bigger bodies, and these toes turned into hoofs as a way for the horse to run faster and have a bigger stride. And as prey, they wanted to be able to move faster. That is fascinating. I got to say, I would never realize that. There are a lot of animals with hooves, obviously, but you're saying that the horse is the only one that has a single hoof. Right. And I don't know if you know this, but when a horse jumps, you know, horses can jump really high. They land on one hoof. So that's a 1,600-pound animal landing basically on one toe. Wow. Wow. I never thought of hooves as toes before, but I will in the future. Oh, wait. What? Well, I forgot one more thing, which is they've got a extra bone called the splint bone in their lower leg, which has no use at all. And what they think is that that's the remnant from evolution. You know, the one toe got pushed up and it's just there. It's of no use at all. No, that's not right. That's not right. They have the splint bone. Uh, it has a use, uh, which is um, they take it out and use it like a like a like a baton um, for when they um, attack the capital. Oh, I see. Yeah. When MAGA horses get angry, they can use that vestigial bone to attack. Exactly. It's the way they show respect to the police. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe Bonnie didn't know that. You know, she comes, no. you know, you're all acting like you have all this information about horses, but you didn't know that the splint bone was. Uh, I thought you were going to. No, it's a tourist bone. It's a tourist bone. It's a peaceful tourist bone. <laughs> okay, here's one of more course. thing. Of course. Oh, there's thing, another thing. This is like the Ginsu knife. Yeah, what else? Yeah, there's always one more thing. No, but I can't. Okay, but. All right. Did you know that equestrian sports is one of the few sports where men and women compete on the same level? There's no distinction for sex. That's not true. Paula says that's not true, Bonnie. Yeah. What's um, she going to say? Uh, there's this. Uh, no, there's a steeplechase with a dick. What did you think that was? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, what about Dick steeplechase? Yeah. Uh, I didn't think of dick people chase. I not people, not people up. chase, steeple chase. <laughs> anyway, I think the only and, and what about events? the annual Tennessee flapping boobs derby? Yeah, you didn't think about that, did you? <laughs> I guess not. Darts is one. Yeah, what about 
What about that race that takes place at Suffolk Downs? Ride like a girl. What about that? Did you think of that? <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah. And the balls on the pommel open. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think she thought about that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now that we've totally polluted that info party section, let's move. <laughs> And, and I do want to point out that I've noticed to this point that Paula and Bonnie both chose to reach to their immediate lives. Paula to the worms in her backyard and Bonnie to the fact that her daughter is an equestrian to make it easier to get those facts. Um, okay, thanks for noticing. Tony Anita Hall, what do you have for us? <laughs> okay, what about the Pocono Now I Can't Have Kids Invitational? Did you think about that one? Yeah. Tony, what did you dig up? So mine is about babies. So more human twins are being born now than ever before. According to a new study in the journal Human Reproduction, the, quote, twinning rate has increased by one-third since the 80s, up from 9 mm. to 12 twins per 1,000 deliveries. Currently, that adds about 1.6 million twins born each year across the world, meaning one out of every 42 babies is a twin. Wow. Wow. And is this a result of fertility treatments? Because that's what I always hear. Yeah, so um, absolutely. And also the delay in childbearing. Twinning has been found to increase with a mother's age because people are having babies later. Oh, yeah. I had a neighbor who was 82, and uh, she gave birth <laughs> uh, to, to triplets. Yeah, almost freakish. Did you have twins in your class? I did not. You didn't have any twins, Tony? No. We had the Kittigrad twins, and uh, they were identical twins, but they would get in fights a lot and call each other ugly. Oh, it's a form of self-loathing. We had uh, Eric and Jerry Waldman, and uh, I wasn't very nice to them. I had a love-hate with them when I was little. It was a hundred dresses kind of a thing, I think. You know, I teased them to keep the teasing off of me. Looking back, it, wa it wasn't good. I, I shouldn't have. Well, you want to apologize for them right, right now? I do. I have wanted to. I've tried to Google them. I've tried to look them up, um, but I couldn't find them. Uh, Eric and Jerry Waldman, uh, I owe you an apology. Uh, 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 I'm so sorry that I contributed to making your elementary school years miserable. There, it's been said. Yeah, all right. And if anybody knows them, please uh, pass that message along. Please. Paula is very sorry about that. I am. Well, that was a good piece of uh, that was a good piece of knowledge there, Tony. Yeah, I've got one. It's just kind of a practical, fun kind of thing. There's been like a revolution in movie theater sound in the last ten years, and nobody knows what it is. So I thought I'd explain it. I know what it is. What they turn the volume up. No, no, you think it's that, but it's not. <laughs> now some of us have home theaters, right? You know, you set up a home theater, and you've got. You've got a center channel and you've got a left and a right speaker and behind you, you have left and right speakers. So that's a total of five speakers and you usually have a subwoofer to, for the big bass sounds. And that's 5.1, right? That's what, they, that's what they call it. I, didn't, I never heard of that. Me neither. That's what movie theaters have been doing and home theaters have been doing since uh, the late 80s. That all changed just a few years ago with something called Dolby Atmos and most people don't know what that is. Do, do you hear my dog barking? It's a subwoofer. Yeah. She's under the porch. Oh, the, um, any case. All right, I'm sorry to interrupt. Keep going. The new thing is called Dolby Atmos. It's short for atmosphere. Atmost. 
Yep, that's what, that's what's in all the big theaters nowadays. How many huh. speakers does that involve? Two. No. Five. No. Ten. Possibly. Tony? <laughs> Twelve. <laughs> Tony, are you Googling right now? I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm actually not Googling, I swear. She's Googling. I can no, tell I'm she's not. I, I'll just let I you guys swear. know what it is. I'll turn over all the cards. What Atmos is, is it's this really cool thing where they put speakers on the ceilings of theaters and home theaters. But the thing is, you can put as many up there as you want. And as long as the theater system knows where the speakers are, it sends the right sounds to the right places. So you are literally surrounded in a dome of sound. Wow. Cool. Huh. You could put 150 like they have at the Dolby Theater right now. Uh, I just think it's a really cool thing that's happened in sound. And nobody really knows what it is except people like like to buy tickets that say Atmos on them. That's because we can't go there. Well, actually, we, we can now. I'm triple vaxxed. I can go. You can go anywhere you want. You can't be the boss of me. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that was fun, everybody. Hey, listeners, we're thinking of doing a listener edition of Potluck Info Party. So if you want to send some to us, drop us a line at nobody listens to Paula Poundstone at gmail.com. All right, Paula, what's going on in your Poundstone product empire this week? Adam, Poundstone Industries, also known as Lipstick Nancy Incorporated, where we make Poundstone pussy pillows. Catnip stuffed, handcrafted, four inch by five and a half inch pillows with a cat joke on one side, autographed to your cat on the other side, and featuring a grommet to attach a string, has been turned into Santa's workshop for the holidays. Yeah, sure. If Santa's elves smell like catnip 24-7, I chased a ball with a bell in it for over an hour last night. So that listeners can order them for the cats and cat lovers in their lives at the shop at paulapoundstone.com. And remember, houseplants help with winter blues. But what helps with houseplants? A pick-me-up of worm castings. You can get rich, fresh worm waste for $4 a pound plus shipping from my worm farm, the funniest farm in the world. And for a limited time, for $30 plus shipping... You can get the How the Heck Does She Do It package, a pound of worm castings, and a short personalized video showing you some part of my worm farming process. Email me at paula at paulapoundstone.com. My website where you'll find the shop is paulapoundstone.com, and my email to order your worm waste or the limited time only How the Heck Does She Do It package is paula at paulapoundstone.com. Of course, there's more, but Heidi. Yeah. And Heidi, if I can just get one more thing in, it's the holiday season. And for that movie lover in your life, what would be better than Confessions of a Puppet Master, the new book from Charles Band and Adam Felber, wherein we tell the life story of Charles Band, the legendary B-movie producer who produced more than 350 movies and gave the movie career start to people like Demi Moore, Helen Hunt, and Bill Maher. That's Confessions of a Puppet Master, available at fine booksellers right now. You can subscribe to this podcast. It's free. You'll get it every week at no charge. If there's something you want to know more about, tell us. We're at nobodylistenstopaulapoundstone at gmail.com. And that is our show. Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone is hosted by Paula Poundstone and yours truly, Adam the Felber. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Timothy Campbell. Yay! Woo! Woo! Woo!
And to our house band, Chris Monye. I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Tony. Yes. Yay! Yeah. Our show is produced by Paula Poundstone, Adam Felber, Bonnie Burns, Ken Lezebnik, and Tony Anita Hull. Starburns production by Land Romo. Poundstone Industries production by Vic Lowry. Transcription services for the show provided by Transcribe Me, a premier internationally used transcription service. Use code Paula Poundstone when placing your order at transcribeme.com to receive an expedited service. And thanks to the voice talents of Paul Matlock. Tony Anita Hall did not use <laughs> Eristic wow. correctly three <laughs> times during this episode, so we will unfortunately not be able <laughs> to accept Miss Nancy's generous offer of dollars worth of advertising for Marshall's Music and Bookstore at 618 North Ferris Street in Jackson, Mississippi. I sure wish we could have, but Marshall's Music and Bookstore at 618 North Ferris Street in Jackson, Mississippi will not receive mentions on our show. If anyone knows that store, please contact us because we are not going to be able to mention Marshall's Music and Bookstore at 618 North Ferris Street in Jackson, Mississippi. That's our show for tonight. Won't somebody please listen to me? I mean, you have worms. I have I have worms, but I never knew how they crawled. I didn't. I didn't discover that on my own. I had to look it up. I think those bristly hairs are very. Uh, they're very small and hard to see. Uh, especially if they shave or wax. Oh yeah. You know how Tony's cat is has got an agent. Well, my headworm Leonard. <laughs> um, Leonard. I saw Leonard on a commercial the other day, showing like a smooth shave, and uh, he was barely moving on the. He's just sort of rolling back and forth. Yeah. You look Hollywood smooth, but if you can't move, you can't move. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tragedy. He didn't know. They should put some sort of warning for earthworms of all kinds on uh, razors. Yeah, and in those waxing spas. There's nothing worse than like somebody waxing a worm and then oh, it can't leave. Oh, jeez. Nothing worse than hearing those worm screams. <laughs> Scarpins Audio, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.